If you grew up in my generation, or even a little earlier actually, um, some of you were permanently damaged, <laughs> maybe even scarred, because of the Disney movie Old Yeller. <laughs> oh man, what a bummer that was. Um, there was that, you know, that, that kid, uh, you know, and, and they were down there, uh, you know, somewhere, I don't even know what, Texas, the South, some Kentucky maybe. Um, and the kid found this dog and he, you know, at first he didn't really like the dog because he was stealing chicken eggs and stuff like that. But, um, but he ends up, you know, kind of liking the dog. And then I think the dog sort of rescues him from a bear and, you know, and then you really like the dog and the family adopts the dog that they found and, and they called him Yeller, you know, as uh, kind of his yellow colorish dog. Um, but you started to love Old Yeller, and it was this happy little family show, you know, all the old Disney actors and everything, you know, like the Swiss Family Robinson sons and stuff, same, same actors and everything. Uh, Fess Parker, was that his name? The Daniel Boone guy? He was in it. It was just homey, and it was, it was oh, cuddly and a great dog, and you just loved it. And then the dog got rabies, and the kids shot the dog, the end. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was this horrible movie. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they tried to patch it up at the end. They get a little puppy that was a descendant of Old Yeller. Uh, there was an implication there. And, and then the little puppy stole some eggs like the dad did or whatever. It's supposed to make you feel better, but it didn't. Um, because Old Yeller, and, and, you know, that was one of those growing up things you had to realize, wow, a, a rabid dog. That was the problem. The dog was, was bitten, I uh, forget, by a wild hog or something. Uh, or no, a wolf. I think it was a wolf that bit it or something. And it ended up getting rabies. And rabies, when you get rabies, you're doomed. You're dead. And you know, you, they put the poor old yeller in the chicken coop to see if it was gonna, and you were hoping, maybe it didn't get rabies, you know, and you're hoping as it's in the chicken coop. But then the dog starts foaming at the mouth and snarling at the kid. And you realize, oh man, he's horrible. And he's, he's gonna bite somebody and give somebody else rabies and kill it. So that's why he had to put the dog out of his misery. Shoot him in the head. It was a horrible show. Um, <laughs> How many of you guys saw that movie? Raise your hand. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, you're all, you're all deranged now. Uh, <laughs> but um, you say, Brett, what does that have to do with Nahum? Well, everything. <laughs> People say, well, if God is love, then why is there destruction in the Old Testament? Well, that's the reason right there. Um, you know, if you would, there were entire people groups and nations that had become so rabid with sin and, and they were unfixable. They were doomed already. And the longer they stayed alive, the more they had the propensity to infect other nations and other people groups. And there were times where the Lord said, I have to destroy this people. Now, one thing you have to understand is the Lord gave great mercy and patience to these countries and nations as well. Um, and yet when he saw the Lord knowing all things, knows when that nation or that people group is beyond repair and they're only gonna infect other nations with their sin, there's a point where God says, okay, time's up. And we talked about that on Sunday. We reminded you how this city of Nineveh is the focal point of the book of Nahum. And Nineveh, 100 years earlier, got the, the big break, the one big chance to be rescued, to be free. When Jonah the prophet came and they all repented for just a short season, but after that generation dies off of repented Ninevites, the next generation went right back to their pre-Jonah days of sin and debauchery, and they were this time totally doomed in their sin. 
Um, you know, the short history on Nineveh is they were historically brutal people. They did horrible things to other nations. And we've talked about that extensively in other studies. Even when we were in the book of Jonah, I explained why Jonah didn't wanna go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites, why? Because they were violent, brutal people, feared people. Um, and Nineveh, of course, was the cap capital of Assyria and the Assyrians were a world power for a long, long time. And God gave them hundreds of years to repent. So Jonah came and said, repent. Nahum comes and says, time's up. That's the difference between Jonah and Nahum. Um, you know, it's interesting because these are hard lessons about, you know, the rabid dog lesson, but the Ninevites were doomed and God, you know, some people say, if God is love, then how can you destroy Nineveh? The answer is God is love, so he destroyed Nineveh because he is loving. And you know, that, that old yeller thing, you realize that was probably the most loving act to do. It was hard, uh, it was brutal for that kid to have to shoot his dog, uh, but it was loving in that he was saving his family, saving other animals and all that stuff. And that was one of those hard Walt Disney lessons that they don't teach anymore. <laughs> um, so the book of Nahum is really the destruction of Nineveh and, and it's because God was merciful for a long time, but finally this, the time is up. Uh, interesting, uh, the, the, the name Nahum, it means comfort, uh, which you think, well, why is Nahum uh, called comfort? It seems like he should have had a name more like destruction or uh, you know, total desolation or whatever. But actually uh, there is hints of why uh, you know, Nahum's name, his namesake might even be appropriate. Uh, uh, because if you're not a Ninevite, if you're a Judean, uh, you know, or someone from Israel, you might be saying, oh, thank the Lord, finally the Ninevites are gonna be destroyed. That would have brought great comfort to most of the rest of the world because the Ninevites were so violent and so brutal. The book of Nahum was written somewhere around 663 uh, BC, somewhere between 663 and 665 uh, BC, somewhere in there. Uh, if you do the math on when Nineveh was actually destroyed and what uh, uh, Nahum is talking about. But one of the things you should understand is, and we haven't really talked much about this, you know, we always talk about Babylon and its glorious splendor, which Babylon was an amazing, probably might get the top ranks as far as impressive cities, Babylon. But Nineveh would get a close second. Nineveh was known for being a, a lot of things. It was huge as far as ancient cities go. It was a giant city. Like Babylon, it was protected by an outer wall and an inner wall. The Tigris River was involved uh, there. Um, the inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high, which wasn't, wasn't as big as the Babylonian walls, but it was pretty huge. Uh, nonetheless, they say you could race three chariots on the top of the wall there, uh, uh, you know, side by side on top of that wall. Um, the walls of Nineveh, they said, had 1,200 towers. Each were about 200 feet high. So along the wall were these almost double height of the wall uh, towers. And the largest section of it was, uh, the greater Nineveh was 60 miles in circumference. And the population was around 600,000 during the prophecy of Nahum. Um, the, the, the city itself was internally su supported uh, where they could grow their crops on the inside uh, and you could withstand a siege against Nineveh for 16 to 18 years as histor historians talk about that. So if an army came and besieged the city, they'd have to be in for the long haul. And most armies weren't up for 16 to 18 years of besieging. 
So the Ninevites had been protected and seemingly um, they, they thought, wow, we're, we're safe as, as can be. Um, what happens to a nation when you're self-sufficient and when you can kind of do whatever you want? Um, you know, it's a funny thing, but the more successful the nations are, oftentimes the more, um, you know, morally corrupt they become. And we're gonna see all of that too. The Ninevites became sort of overconfident in their own sinful ways. And um, they thought, well, we must be getting away with it. So it's all good. The Assyrian king acknowledged in, uh, in Jonah 3.8, if you recall, we read that verse in Jonah 3.8 where the Assyrian king acknowledged that his people's ways were evil. Um, they, they just acknowledged it. Yeah, our, our, our people are evil. And they were also acknowledging, characterizing by violence. They were a violent, evil people. And the king uh, of Assyria even acknowledged that. Um, they were also called carefree, uh, thinking themselves invincible. Uh, that's, we read about that in Zephaniah chapter two, verse 15. Um, the prophet Nahum wrote about all their crimes. We'll see that in chapter three as we get to it tonight. But um, this city was known for idolatry. Uh, it had temples dedicated to the gods Nabu, uh, Asher, uh, Adad, Dagon. Uh, who else worshiped Dagon, anybody? Right, the Philistines, the half man, half fish, uh, the fish god. Uh, Dagon. Um, now in chapter one, we're gonna see kind of three chapters, three main sections. Chapter one, we're gonna see the destruction of Nineveh is decreed. Chapter two, we're gonna see the destruction of Nineveh is described. And chapter three, we're gonna see the destruction of Nineveh is deserved. And we're gonna see why that is. So number one, let's, let's move. Uh, uh, Nahum chapter one, the destruction of Nineveh. Um, is decreed by the Lord himself. It says here in verse one, it says, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Um, so this is, uh, this is just kind of the introduction about Nahum being the guy who's given this vision. Uh, what is an Elkoshite? Uh, I don't know, but there's a season where you can shoot them. Um, um, Elko shoot. No, I'm, I, just, I just made that up. No, we don't really know what an Elkoshite is, as it turns out. But some people say, uh, and this is some, I should say, scholars uh, that know this stuff, they believe an Elkoshite was a person who was originally from the area of Capernaum. And uh, it's interesting because Capernaum uh, is Capernaum. Uh, is, the, is the name there. And some people believe, and it's debatable, whether the, the town of Capernaum was named after Nahum the prophet. And some people believe Elkoshites were from the region of, of uh, Capernaum. Uh, by the way, Capernaum uh, is a place we take you when we go to Israel. It's one of my favorite spots. It's beautiful on the Sea of Galilee. This is one of our picks we took last time we were there on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum. And, um, and this little town, it's, it's a ruin. It's an ancient ruin right now. There's nothing there except for all ancient ruins. Um, this is the ruin of a synagogue uh, that is there. Those, the dark gray stones there, uh, the stairs you see in the little short walls, those are during the time of Christ actually, era houses where people lived. Um, Peter lived in Capernaum of all places uh, there and they built a spaceship over Peter's house, the Catholics did to commemorate his house and they kind of ruined the whole thing. But um, if you kind of take the spaceship and you block it out with your hand, you can kind of see what Capernaum must have looked like during the time of Christ. <laughs> um, this is closer inside that synagogue. Now, this is that synagogue. Remember where Jesus uh, uh, healed the guy with the withered hand? That happened here in this 
synagogue of Capernaum. And what's interesting about this beautiful location is Jesus did all these miracles in Capernaum. He did more miracles in Capernaum than any other place. And, uh, and it's interesting because the people of Capernaum didn't believe in Jesus. They, they rejected him, even with all the miracles. And Jesus said, oh, Capernaum and, and also Bethsaida and Chorazin. He said, you know, it would've been better for you guys than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah. Like Sodom and Gomorrah are gonna, should've got a bigger break because they didn't have me doing miracles there, but because I did these things and you still rejected me, you're gonna be um, desolate and, and destroyed. And, and that's why here's this most beautiful spot on the Sea of Galilee, I'd build a resort here. Why is nothing built here? Because Jesus said nothing would be built here. It's just a ruin. Um, by the way, this synagogue is where Jesus did that, but I shouldn't say it that way. Those pillars are a little bit after Jesus. If you look at the side of the synagogue, this is kind of me in the back alley, us looking kind of, I always am nerded out a little bit archeologically, but I bring our group around to the backside where nobody's looking. And the white stones were hauled in later after Jesus's era. But you see the foundation there that's dark, dark gray? That's the original foundation of when Jesus would have walked into that synagogue. Um, so th that, that just kind of gives you how much time has gone by over the millennia and stuff like that. But why do I talk about Capernaum? Some people believe that, you know, that little town was named after Nahum the prophet, as it turns out. Don't know for sure, but that's what they believe an Elkoshite might be, don't know for sure. But anyway, we see here the destruction of Nineveh is decreed in this chapter. And he begins really with, with his message in verse two. It says in verse two, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds that are the dust of his feet. Um, here we begin the discussion of what's gonna happen here, the destruction of Capernaum. One thing we need to understand right out of the gate here is God, if you could say this, is ticked. <laughs> He's really ticked. Uh, how do I so? Well, it says that, you know, over and over again, God is jealous, but I mean, it doesn't get much stronger. He revenges and is furious. Um, it's interesting because, you know, um, your margin says, or hath fury. That's a word we don't see associated in God as much. We hear about God's wrath or he was wroth with the people or uh, angry, but this is furious. He's furious against it. Now, now we have to be careful not to superimpose sinful human characteristics on these um, righteous attributes of God. There is a righteous anger. There is a righteous jealousy. There is a righteous fury. Um, and you have to understand that. Um, because uh, we never see any unrighteousness in God. There's no darkness in him at all. The Bible declares God doesn't sin, of course. So be careful about saying, well, why is God so you know, upset? He should calm down. Uh, you know, he needs not be, have such a temper tantrum. Um, no, remember it says here, he's slow to anger. This isn't just him just flying off the handle like you know, some you know, bourbon drinking, wife beating, horrible husband. Uh, some people try to superimpose that kind of image on God, you know, um, of, of this angry husband or something. Nope. Um, well, it says he's jealous, um, a jealous God. That's, that's a human nature characteristic. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but I think this is one of the more famous people whose faith was derailed by this single word, Oprah Winfrey. 
Um, really sad, you know, I mean, she, she was a woman who grew up in like the, you know, the Baptist church in the South and, and her pre- preacher was one uh, day she was preaching, he was preaching on uh, Exodus 20, you know, on the, the 10 commandments and stuff. And the preacher said, our God is a jealous God. And she sat back in the pews as a young woman thinking, well, I don't know if I wanna believe in a God that has jealousy. And that's what derailed her faith. You, Brad, I think she's a Christian. She's not, she's a new ager. Uh, just the hardcore, doesn't get more, more new age than Oprah. Um, and she um, believes in all kinds of things. By the way, did you see the, there was a poll that just came out last week. Uh, Barna did a poll on um, shock. I guess I shouldn't be shocked. I, I, I think mathematically I'm not shocked, but just spiritually I'm just shocked, is how most of Christians in America are really syncretists or believe in syncretism which is basically, they claim to be Christianity, they claim to be Christians, but they actually believe in all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and they adopt other religions and say, it's all kind of the same, Allah, Jehovah, the same thing. And they, they're just syncing it all up is kind of the idea, if you can think of syncretism as that way. But, but like real Bible-believing Christians today are becoming an extinct thing. You can't find a lot of Bible. Now, I, I think we have a little corner of our little microcosm here in Oregon, uh, here at Athey Creek, where people are Bible-believing Christians. But you have to understand, we're, we're not the norm anymore. We're, we're actually quite the exception. Sad to say, according to the studies that have been done. But Oprah, she, she fall, falls in that category of someone who's a syncretist and, and more new age. And, and it was because of the word jealousy. By the way, Let's talk about that one, because that's, that's a good one. Um, if you look up jealousy in the dictionary, there's actually a bunch of definitions. Um, let me give you some of the, 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 and these are the order of the ones you'll read in uh, Webster's and what have you. Number one, jealous, hostile toward a rival or one who, uh, one believed to enjoy an advantage. Um, uh, you all did that when you were in high school, uh, maybe. Um, number two, fearful or wary of being supplanted, apprehensive of losing affection or a position. You're jealous because maybe somebody at work is getting more accolades than you and you're gonna lose status or position. You're insecure in that. Uh, number three, resentful or bitter in rivalry, envious, jealous of the success of another or others, inclined to su- suspect rivalry. Number four, having to do with or arising from feelings of envy, apprehension, or bitterness, uh, jealous thoughts. And number five, um, you know, vigilant in guarding something. <laughs> oh, okay, now anybody wanna guess which one God is? Because really, you know, if you look at this, the first four are really, uh, you know, sinful kind of notions, aren't they? And that's why Oprah was confused. She just didn't understand there's actually a fifth definition. And by the way, the, the Hebrew Bible doesn't use the word jealous. The, the Hebrew word here is a very specific word that is actually more of a protective sort of natured thing. It's like a parent being jealous for their children. Um, uh, the idea is you want what's best for your children. So you guard your children and you're jealous for them. Not, you're not jealous of them. There's a big difference, you're jealous for them. And the nature of God, uh, he's a jealous God for you. Um, the nature of God, slow to anger, but of great power, it says here, but he's also jealous in that best sense. He's vigilant in guarding you. It's because he loves you that he's jealous for you. Um, 
By the way, um, all this to say, you know, um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, where uh, Oprah was derailed, sadly, um, was this, this scripture, verse, uh, chapter, five and, chapter 20, verse five and six. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve other gods. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So not jealous of us, he's jealous for us, as it turns out. Well, uh, as we go on, verse three, uh, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Um, and, uh, and one thing you have to remember is um, people make the mistake of thinking that um, God uh, is apathetic. In fact, we kind of, one of the things we remember here is, is that um, the Lord is full of judgment. Remember Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 31? Don't forget verses like this. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. The living God, uh, if he's gonna judge you or pour out his wrath upon you, when the Lord says you're going down, uh, you're going down. Uh, just remember that uh, and don't forget that. We talked about that on, on Sunday, but I love that it says that he's patient here. The Lord is slow to anger, but also um, great in power, great in power. Um, like we talked about on Sunday, the wheels of God's wrath turn slowly, but grind thoroughly. So be careful to not dismiss God. But notice in verse three, there's three cataclysmic type events. Um, and the Lord is in those things, the whirlwind um, and in the storm and in the dust cloud. Um, the dust cloud is something we don't experience very often here in Oregon. But if you live in the Middle East, when the dust clouds come, man, it's brutal and destructive uh, or, you know, dust storm as they call it. Um, so, you know, um, you know, basically Nineveh and all of Assyria would have been worshiping other idols, false gods. And one of the false gods they would worship, interestingly enough, had to do with nature. In fact, many of the pagan people worshiped nature. You know, the Egyptians were big on worshiping nature and animals and the sun and all that, and earth worship and stuff like that. And, um, and it's funny because human nature doesn't get that far even after millennia. Um, extreme environmentalism is a form of religion right now. Um, and it's funny uh, to see what people are willing to do in the name of environmentalism to uh, sort of fix uh, them. You know, I, I find it interesting, this whole uh, gas crisis that we're now facing and uh, unwilling to open up a little pipeline and, and go back to, you know, a couple years ago, it was so nice having, you know, uh, less than $2 a gallon. Um, people are saying we could go eight, $10 a gallon. Uh, and uh, all you guys with Priuses are saying C <laughs> or Teslas or whatever. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> some of us with Ford F-150s, uh, we're, we're gonna be uh, uh, hitching a ride maybe uh, with some of you guys in your Prius. But, um, but all that to say, um, you know, it's interesting because um, that's all earth worship. There's sort of this, you know, hey, we shut down the pipeline. So we're, you know, we, we care about the environment. And, and if you watch Inconvenient Truth 20 years ago that said where the earth was gonna be gone and less than that, um, then you would think that, oh yeah, the earth, earth is going down. And, you know, if you're AOC, uh, what are we on year now? I think we have eight or nine years left uh, because she said, you know, a few years ago, we have 12 years uh, until it's over on the planet, AOC, that bastion of total truth and information. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's just really, you know, 
I think a lot of it has nothing to do with, it depends on who you are. There's people that are just political you know, people and they're doing things for political reasons, but there is a group of people that are still worshiping the earth. And uh, that's never a good plan. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter one, the Lord's gonna fold this earth up like an old garment, like an old pair of Levi's, you know, uh, fold them up and put them away because it's gonna be worn out. Well, Brett, does that mean we should just trash the planet? Of course not. We're, we're supposed to be good stewards of the planet. Don't mistake what I'm saying about, you know, extreme environmentalism is just trashing the planet. Of course not. And I don't know anybody who believes that we should just trash the planet. If, that's ridiculous. But there's also this uh, virtue signaling that's going on that people are saying, you know, we're just saving the earth and, and uh, they're, they're making up stuff. Uh, there's so-called science. Like the Bible says in the last days, there'd be science falsely so-called. I think a lot of this is just really made up. Well, Brett, you mean you don't believe in global warming? I do. The Bible says the earth is gonna melt with a fervent heat uh, and it's gonna happen instantly, poof. Like it's not a slow thing. It's gonna happen for sure. Um, so yes, global warming is gonna happen. I just not the way everybody says it's gonna happen. Um, but don't mistake the Lord's patience here um, because he's not doing anything. Um, I think people mistake this and that's why the Lord's saying, you know, he's slow to anger, but great in power. It's almost like here we're, we're being reminded, you know, that the Lord, um, he, he's, gonna, he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. And, and, and the slowness or patience should not be mistaken for uh, things like this. You know, it's interesting, God's not doing anything because, and some people think it's because of apathy. Maybe he doesn't care. Or, or perhaps impotence. But see, even this verse right here tells us the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. It's not that God doesn't have power to destroy or intervene right now. Some people think that God is powerless or uh, they, they think that he uh, just approves with everything we're doing. Maybe you're not that bad. I wonder if the Ninevites thought, well, you know, 100 years ago, Jonah told us we're gonna be destroyed, but look, we're still doing good. Maybe God really doesn't care that much, apathy. Or maybe God's not as powerful as, or you know, the God of the Jews is not as powerful as we thought. And so impotence. Or, hey, we're just good people and we're just being who we are and you know, people like us and so we're good to go. These are the same things we think today and, and these things fly in the face of a patient but powerful God. So this, this you know, book of, of Nahum basically says these are huge mistakes when you think that you know, the Lord's patience is apathy, impotence, or approval. Big mistake. Well, back to our, our passage here. Um, all that to say, um, verse four, it says, he rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Sometimes when we see cataclysmic events like earthquakes and fires, remember the fires a few summers ago? Uh, and you know, you're just stricken with, um, just uh, a sense of there's nothing we can do. Um, uh, you know, did any of you drive through Phoenix Talent area of Southern Oregon? Um, you know, you'd think we could figure out how to get rid of a fire. You know, a little fire's burning. Come on, let's get that thing out. 
but uh, it destroyed a whole town down there in Southern Oregon. I mean, I grew up with people that, I went over to their friend's house, they're all burned down now. Uh, the whole city uh, section was burned and there's nothing we can do about it. Hurricanes, you know, tornadoes. Did you see the tornado a few, uh, few months ago? There was some big ones that ripped through entire towns and leveled neighborhoods, le- left splinters only. Um, and this is Nahum saying, God is the awesome controller of that power. By the way, uh, it reminds us a little bit of the description in the tribulation period that's coming that God will unleash his power. And some of that will be through nature or uh, God's power through nature, earthquakes, um, big ones. The Bible says in the tribulation period, there's gonna be a hailstorm that hailstones will be over a hundred pounds. Can you imagine a hundred pound hailstones hitting your car or your head? Uh, there's not much of a future in that. I'm just gonna say that. If you get hit in the head by a 100-pound hailstone, lights out. Um, now you say, but that's horrifying and scary. Well, I always like to remind you that we as Christians were not appointed to this. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 talks about the rapture of the church and the end times. And I like to rem- remind you, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as you do. So even though wrath is coming in the greater scheme, like we talked about on Sunday, this book is talking about Nineveh. The Bible tells us that this kind of destruction is coming for the whole world uh, during that time called the tribulation period. But good news, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus. Um, So man, praise the Lord for that. And then verse seven, we looked at this on Sunday. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Now, why is this little verse tucked in here? Because remember, Nahum is a Jewish guy prophesying about, you know, the Assyrians. And so here, you know, uh, the Jews might find a little comfort in this because some of the Jews do trust in the Lord and, and he's reminding them, don't worry, if you trust in the Lord, you're good to go. Um, you're gonna be safe um, if you trust in the Lord. Um, and we looked at that three points. God is good, God is a stronghold for those who are in trouble and God cares for them that trust in him. We looked at that in depth. And that's maybe one of the reasons why Nahum gets this name, the, you know, the comforted or the comforter, a guy who's a comfort uh, to people. Well, verse eight goes on and it says, but with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble, fully dry. Now here's where I have to debate a little bit of how deep to go into this, but what's amazing about the book of Nahum, maybe more than, maybe more than just about any other book. Did you know that we have extra biblical literature that was written by ancient people that were there during those times. The Ninevites actually did a pretty good job recording things. Um, One of the things, if you're into history, it's amazing how different people groups recorded stuff and other people didn't record stuff. You know, like, um, you know, Julius Caesar time, there were were interesting recordings, but it's also how they recorded about these ancient people. Some people just told the math of it. And so they went there from point A to point B and they fought this battle. 
But some of the more interesting his, uh, ancient writers wrote what they must have been thinking and feeling. Like they got into it a little more. Uh, and it, it's a funny thing about history. There's, there's other parts of history. We don't hardly know anything about stuff. You know, Genghis Khan, for example. We know the blood and the death that went for a long time on the, what do they call it? The steppe, you know, that whole region of the world where these, the, the, the Mongols were just like brutal. Uh, we just know brutality, but we don't even know what he looked like. Did he look more like a Chinese guy or did he look more like a Russian person? Like we have no idea what Genghis Khan, Genghis, nope, Genghis, uh, as it turns out. Um, and, um, and it's a funny thing because his, we, we know very little about him as a person because history didn't really record that. One of the things that I love about things but I love about the Bible is the Bible gives massively detailed accounts of things. And it's, it's, it's really second to none, in my opinion. There's, there's, of course, it's inspired. We all know that. But if you're just a secularist comparing the Bible historically to other works of history, man, the Bible wins every time. It's amazing how, you know, there's such detail in these ancient writings. It's kind of cool. But as it turns out, there's a bunch of writings about the destruction and the fall of Assyria and specifically Nineveh, which is kind of cool. And I'll tell you why. Because the Bible gives us these sort of uh, Nahum prophetic, even sort of uh, poetic um, renditions of what happens in the de destruction of Nineveh. But what's so cool about this is it perfectly matches some of the extra biblical writings of what happened in the fall of Nineveh. And I love that because whenever you find archeology span or writings or whatever that are legit, you find them to match with the Bible and it only proves the Bible's authenticity and inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Um, Nahum is a great book for that because Nahum the prophet says, here's how this is gonna go down. Before the destruction of Nineveh even happened, uh, you know, Nahum says, here's how it's gonna go down. And, and if you compare it, and, and this is a little bit of a uh, um, heady stuff, a little bit esoteric to dive into this, but I'm gonna attempt to do a little bit of that right now. So it says here in verse eight, but with an overrunning flood, um, uh, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. What's interesting is historical accounts or extra biblical uh, writers about the destruction of Nineveh that were about the same time, a little bit after the destruction of Nineveh, they wrote about how this, the city was destroyed. And I'm gonna read to you some of those. Um, Bibliotheca Historia. Uh, 2.26.9, if you wanna jot these things down, I probably should have put them up on a slide for you if you really are a history buff. But if you look up the destruction of Nineveh, you'll find in Bibliotheca Historia, you'll find um, this statement, Nineveh was destroyed by a flood um, uh, in the third year of the siege. Heavy rains caused a nearby river to flood. Um, most of the city started to fall apart because the walls were broken up by the water. Um, Another uh, ancient guy, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, uh, Xenophon uh, Anabasis, who knows how you say that stuff, um, uh, 2.26.9, uh, pardon me, 3.4.12, Xenophon Anabasis, um, he writes about the uh, terrifying thunder, presumably with a storm associated with the city's capture. Also the Kosa uh, River entering the city from the Northwest, um, running through the cities, the direction flooded because of the heavy rains and the enemy gates were destroyed at the Sluice Gate. Like these are extra biblical writings that detail the description of the destruction of Nineveh. Um, isn't it interesting that before this even happened, 
Nahum says in verse eight, but with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness will pursue his enemies. Now, um, I'm gonna show you little highlights of this, but every detail that Nahum describes, you can find written by extra biblical literature about the fall and destruction. To me, that's really cool. Do you guys see what I'm saying there? That's like a really cool thing that the Bible is only affirmed every single time by true historical accounts of things like this. So kind of cool. So another historical account, by the way, um, that has to do more with verse nine. Verse nine says, what do you imagine against the Lord? Will he make an utter end? Affliction shall not rise up the second time. In historical accounts, Nineveh's destruction would be final. That's what uh, verse nine tells us here. But um, many cities of the ancient Near East uh, would be rebuilt after destruction like Samaria and Jerusalem, but not Nineveh. Now, Mosul is um, in Iraq and some people say, well, Mosul was rebuilt. But if you kind of look at it, where ancient uh, Nineveh was, was right next to where Mosul is today. And the ancient walls of Nineveh are kind of outside of the modern city of Mosul today. So so you can still see that Nineveh never really rose up into be a city again. Mosul kind of next to where it was, but not Nineveh. So some people will say, well, Mosul was brought up. How many of you guys have been to Mosul? Anybody? Yeah, so some of our military personnel, you're like, yeah, this was not a great vacation uh, there in Mosul. <laughs> uh, that was uh, one of the worst battles, you know, uh, uh, there in Iraq. But, but all that to say, um, uh, you know, it's interesting to me how there in that region of the world, um, ancient writings perfectly parallel. I'll show you a few more of those maybe as we go through all this. But um, verse 10, for while they were folded together as thorns, And while they were drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully. Uh, Interesting, Uh, again, historical accounts. This comes from uh, Diodorus uh, Seculus. Uh, um, and uh, he writes in the Bibliotheca Historia about the same thing. Let me read. In the final hours of the attack, the Ninevites would become drunk. The Assyrian king distributed to his soldiers meats and liberal supplies of wine and provisions while the whole army was thus um, a crowsing, is the word he uses there. The friends of um, our, our Bakis uh, learned from some of the deserters of the Assyrian armor, army um, that the slackness and drunkenness was prevailing in the enemy's camp. So these guys made an unexpected unexpected attack by night, knowing they were all sloshed with drunkenness and destroyed their army. Um, isn't it interesting? So this extra biblical account says that some, some deserters said, man, those guys are all drunk, go get them. And the Bible says here in verse 10, for they'd be folded together as thorns while they were drunk as drunkards, they'd be dis- dis- uh, destroyed as stubble. That, this is all ancient writers confirming that Nahum knew what he was talking about prophetically before it even happened. Well, verse 11 goes on. It says, there is uh, one come out um, of thee uh, that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. (laughs) Uh, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. Um, Verse 12 and 13, it's almost like Nahum turns and he's talking to the men of Judah. 
um, just for a second, turns aside to the men of Judah and says, um, I know that there was someone from Nineveh that was, that was called the wicked counselor. And he turns in verse 12 and says, you know, the Lord's gonna shut them down. And that person, uh, I will not allow to afflict you. I will not afflict you anymore through the person that was the, the, the wicked counselor. Does anybody remember an Assyrian that came down and was a wicked counselor to the Jews? He was a powerful guy who came and yelled up at the walls with the Hebrew guys up sitting on the top of the walls. Anybody remember that? Rabshakeh the Trashtakeh. Remember that guy? We talked about him. I taught about Rabshakeh. He was an Assyrian wicked counselor. Um, and he was, under the, the, he was under the leadership of, of Sennacherib, as we call him. In the Middle East, you'd say Sanhariv. Uh, but um, Sennacherib uh, and Rabshakeh, they were the, this dynamic duo. Uh, Sennacherib, more the one in power. But Rabshakeh was sent down and he just trash talked all day long and said, you guys are gonna die. You know, you need to just give up your city and we're gonna take you on. And on and on he went and trash talking all day long. This is who Nahum is referring to. When he says, um, you know, there's, there's one who's imagined evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Now, by the way, there's some that, that say there's a link to the Antichrist as a picture in Rabshakeh. Kind of interesting, uh, which that'd be a whole nother study we could talk about. But the Antichrist is one who is a wicked counselor. We can agree with that. And he also will try to tell the Jews something uh, that is gonna be bad counsel and uh, have evil intentions, just like Rabshakeh did. But the Lord says, I will break off his yoke, verse 13, from off thee and will burst thy bonds in sunder. And that's what the Lord would do. Remember that story of Rabshakeh, um, the, the Lord burst the bondage by wiping out 185,000 soldiers with a single angel at nighttime. Remember that, that story? Um, that's the Lord breaking off the bondage of the Assyrians to the Southern two tribes, the men of Judah. And that's what this little verse 12 and 13 is referring to. Um, by the way, do you know the Lord doesn't want you to remain in bondage to the wicked counselor? Um, the Lord says, I'm not gonna leave you there in the wicked counselor's you know, bondage. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deliver you. And I think the Lord would say that to you. Some of you might be listening to the wicked counselor and, and you know, you're never gonna be successful in that. You're never gonna break that addiction. But it's, as it turns out, the Lord, just like when we're in bondage to sin, the Lord doesn't want us to remain there in bondage. He wants to give us victory. And, and how do we do that? Well, how did they get out of their bondage? It was a supernatural miracle where an angel came and delivered the men of Judah from the army of the Assyrian. Um, man, don't sell the Lord short. Don't forget to pray and say, Lord, would you break these bonds of whatever's entangling me in the bondage of sin? This is a beautiful picture. That whole story is a picture of that. And this is what Nahum is referring to. But verse 14 goes on and says, the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. Now we're back talking to the men of Nineveh. Um, uh, that no more of thy name be sown out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, the molten image. I will make thy grave for thou art vile. Behold, on the mountains, uh, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. First verse 14, um, they're called the vile people. And, um, and he says, your images of these gods and goddesses are gonna be cut off. Did you see that where it says, I will cut off the graven image and the molten image and make thy grave for thou art vile. 
Um, interesting language to cut off the images or cut off the graven images. When you read the Hebrew account, it literally means to cut their images in pieces. Um, can I read you another historical account that's extra biblical? Uh, this, is, um, this is basically confirming verse nine and verse 14 of the book of Nahum chapter one. Um, in R. Campbell uh, Thompson and R. W. Hutchinson, the uh, annals of archeological and anthropological studies, um, he wrote this, the statue of the goddess Ishtar lay headless in the debris of Nineveh's ruins. Um, by the way, Ishtar goes all the way back to Nimrod and the ancient um, mystery Babylonian religion. If you know about that, remember the whole, and that's where Christmas actually, uh, we get really into uh, the weeds when I start talking about this stuff and you're like, what are you talking about? But um, Ishtar was the part that comes to Easter, by the way. Um, and they were worshiping Ishtar uh, and her head lays cut off in the debris, only confirming what the Lord says, I will cut those images in, in the graven images in pieces. That's only confirmed here. Now in verse 15, um, does this verse sound familiar? When we read, you know, behold upon the mountains, uh, the feet of him that brings good tidings. Some of you are like, yeah, it sounds kind of familiar. Well, this is where, uh, you know, Isaiah the prophet said the same kind of thing. It's Isaiah 52, uh, verse seven. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings or good news that publisheth peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Isn't that a glorious verse? Um, now, this is the only problem. Some of us aren't really into feet that much. Uh, uh, it's like, you know, you look at someone's feet and you go, yeah, never mind. I don't, it's like kind of gross. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's funny, the Bible talks about lovely feet. Uh, who's got lovely feet? Well, the person who brings good news, the person that's walking along, bringing good news to them. That's an that's a idiom of the Bible, the lovely feet of those who bring good news. Um, Paul the apostle jumped on the good feet, beautiful feet bandwagon in Romans 10, verse 13. He says, for whosoever um, shall uh, call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, how then shall they call on him, uh, him in whom they have no, not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how, they sh uh, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, and he's quoting now, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good news. Um, so, you know, by the way, when, when we talk about the, um, the, the beautiful feet, if you're into this, this sort of comparison of these three verses, the Romans 10, um, you know, the Isaiah you know, 52, and then the Nahum chapter two, if you compare them, each talks about a different thing. Isaiah is talking about the millennial kingdom as it turns out. Uh, Romans is talking about the Lord delivering them, th those that are hurting there in, in Romans. But here in, uh, in Nahum, uh, he's talking about the Jews uh, bringing good news uh, of the Assyrian defeat. So it is kind of interesting that the, the very purposes, even though it's the same language, they're kind of different things, but it's all good news. Are you a person with beautiful feet? Brett, uh, I don't think so. See, my, my family, we're kind of cursed. We all joke, because we all have Fl Fred Flintstone feet. Um, remember when the Flintstones would get in their car and you'd see their little feet? and they take off. Um, that's our feet pretty much. Big blocky feet, you know, and uh, wide and high, you know, and just kind of caveman-esque. Uh, not, not that beautiful. 
But, uh, but if you bring the gospel, uh, as it turns out, you have beautiful feet, <laughs> according to the Bible. So I, I get in by an honorary uh, sort of delineation because I try to preach the gospel as much as I can. Uh, and hopefully you do too, because uh, that's important. Well, that brings us to chapter two. So I told you chapter one is, um, you know, this, um, uh, as far as uh, the, the decree, the destruction of Nineveh is decreed, but chapter two is the destruction of Nineveh is described for us uh, right here um, in verse one through uh, 13. It says in verse one, he that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Um, you know, basically this is the Lord saying, even as you marred the branches of the vine of Israel, so will Nineveh your branches be marred, is kind of what he's saying there. Um, verse three, the shield of his mighty men is made red, that is with blood. Uh, the valiant men are in, are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against the other in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like, light, like the lightnings. But, wow, verse, um, uh, verse three and four sounds like driving in Portland. Um, <laughs> verse four, the chariots jostling against one another. Do you guys remember in the uh, movie, Ben-Hur, uh, the chariot race scene? Um, uh, you know, the original one, I'm, I'm not talking about the more modern one. You could see that one too, I guess. But the, more, the original one, that chariot race scene is, is most famous. And it's famous because there's a rumor that went around that the guy died uh, during the chariot race scene and they kept it in the, in the film. But um, that's a lie, <laughs> that's, that's misinformation. Um, but there were people injured and there is a place in that chariot race where you can actually see a fire engine parked on the side of the chariot. It's kind of funny, it's an ancient. Anyway, but it's still one of the most amazing scenes in all of movie history, I have to say. Um, but one of the things that they stole from the Assyrians actually, um, um, in that movie was, remember when the guys came out with the chariots and they had the blades sticking out of their wheel hub um, and they would try to nudge their chariot up against the other guy's chariots and try to hack up the wheels of the other guy. And if it, did, if it was successful, the chariot would just, you know, uh, high side or whatever and the, throw the occupants out and then they get run over a bunch of times. It was like a brutal, brutal thing. Um, the Assyrians were the ones who did that. They were the ones who put the blades on their chariot wheels. They're the first ones who did that. And that was, that's kind of the language when you read the ancient Hebrew of this, when it says in verse four, the chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against the other in the broad ways. That's what that's talking about. Um, that their chariots would be in that kind of a situation where the blades would be chopping up each other's chariots. Um, so basically it's saying mayhem uh, is gonna be in, uh, happening on the city of Nineveh. Uh, with the chariots and all that, the flaming torches and blood splattering everywhere. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, to see, um, you know, movies of old ancient battle. And, you know, if, if you've watched some of the ones that try to be as realistic as possible, you're kind of reminded, man, how did they even survive that psychologically um, with all the blood and the battles and the blades and the death 
the smells. Like, I'm not trying to be too graphic here, but I'm just saying um, the Lord is not pulling any punches here when he talks about the destruction of Nineveh. And he's talking about the death that would be happening. And we've become so soft and we've become so pampered that uh, we just read something like this and go, oh, can we move on? That just grosses me out, you know? But um, it's interesting how um, things kind of change. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, um, but not only do we see in verses uh, three and four, mayhem and the chariot blades and all that stuff, we also see who these Assyrians are in verse five. It says, he shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk they shall make haste to the wall thereof and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Um, remember when I read about the flooding, the historical account? Um, that's where the walls dissolved by the water, the, the, the um, clay brick that the city was built on was deteriorated by the flood. And that's why the gates failed. Um, and the word dissolved there is a good word. <clears throat> Verse seven, and Huzzab shall be led away captive. Uh, she shall be brought up and her maids shall uh, lead her as with the voice of doves uh, tabbering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. They shall flee away, stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. So people are gonna be running for their lives. Um, the idea is also um, there's gonna be pillaging and plundering. Uh, like in verse eight, they shall flee away and stand away. Um, in uh, ancient records of Assyria and Babylonia um, uh, by uh, Lucanbill, uh, he writes of this, plundering and pillaging would accompany the overflow of the city. Babylonian Chronicle. Uh, quote, great quantities of the spoil from the city beyond counting, they carried off. Um, the city, they turned into a mound and a ruinous heap. That's what the ancients wrote about this. All uh, perfectly fitting, this description. But the idea of um, Huzab being led away captive, this is the king sending their family away, but they end up being captured and all the gold and silver would be carried off. Uh, more historical accounts, um, like, like about this section, come from uh, Didodorus, uh, Bibliotheca Historia. Um, when Nineveh would be captured, its people would try to escape. That's verse eight saying that. Stand, stand, but nobody stand. They ran for their lives and looked, never looked back. Um, it says, uh, uh, this ancient writing, Sardanapalus, another name for King uh, Senshar Ishkin, which is the king of that time, uh, sent away his three sons and two daughters with much treasure in Paphlagonia to the governor of Katas, uh, the most loyal of his subjects. That's ancient history of them trying to send their families away that totally line up with the Bible. I just think that's really cool. I don't wanna bore you with all that, but that, I think that's exciting stuff. Well, um, where did we leave off? Verse nine, um, take ye the spoil of silver and take the spoil of gold for there is none end of the store and glory out of the pleasant furniture. <laughs> she is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth and the knees smite together. Um, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Um, so this is just speaking of the horrible destruction, if you could picture, uh, they put it quite colorfully here. Um, in verse, 13, uh, verse um, 11, 
Um, where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lion's whelp and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for its, his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with uh, raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword shall devour thy young lions and I will cut off thy prey from the earth and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. So basically they were walking around like lions. They had it all dialed in, but the Lord says, but I'm gonna wipe you out and you're gonna be destroyed. Um, one more historical account. Uh, this is, comes from um, R. Campbell Thompson and R.V. Hutchinson in a work called A Century of Exploration at Nineveh. Comes from uh, 1929, the writings. Um, Nineveh would be destroyed by fire. Archeological excavations at Nineveh had revealed charred wood, charcoal and ashes. There was no question about the clear traces of burning in the temple um, uh, as also the palace of Sanhariv um, for a layer of ash about two inches thick lay clearly defined in the palaces on the southeast side of the level of Sargon's pavement. Um, so uh, verse 13 says, I am the Lord and I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword shall be devoured. This is all part of the description, the burning of fire, the flooding with water, all uh, accounted for. Um, when the Lord is against you and he says he's gonna destroy you, he's gonna do that. Um, and I gotta tell you, it's like we talked about on Sunday, the gospel is so beautiful because we realize the Lord doesn't wanna destroy anybody. But if you really wanna be rebellious against the Lord, he will destroy you if you really want that. And you'll feel like a lion. I'm an atheist, man. I know what I'm doing. I'm smart. I'm an intellectual. And you think you're a lion, but the Lord's saying, yeah, but you're a sinner who's gonna be destroyed. And unless you repent and turn from your sins and say, Lord, forgive me for those sins, which the Lord is hoping you'll do. He's he, everything but forcing you to do that. Um, he's lovingly thrown this out of salvation for you. But if you wanna really be destroyed, then you will be destroyed. And man, we could go on and talk about... Um, you know, where, you know, we are personally, but also corporately as a nation. Um, are we really wanting to be destroyed? Because unless we repent nationally, I'm, I'm worried about where we're going um, and what our future holds. Um, the Lord, in seeing the destruction of Nineveh, I can't really see any reason why God wouldn't eventually say the United States, time's up, just like he described here of destruction. But um, you say, well, Brad, I don't know, man. This is pretty brutal. Well, this final chapter will help us understand why the Lord finally says, um, you know, time's up. Um, so we have, you know, the destruction of Nineveh is decreed, number one. The destruction of Nineveh is, is um, described, number two, there in chapter two. But number three, the destruction of Nineveh is deserved. And that's uh, this final chapter. There in verse one, um, the, we kind of have the first section um, verses one through three, they're deserved because of their cruelty, that you can jot that down in your notes. The destruction of Nineveh is deserved because of their cruelty. Look at verse one. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifted up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. And they, and pardon me, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. 
Um, you know what's sad about this is I was reading this today, I couldn't help but think of Ukraine and what's going on there. Again, just heartbroken uh, to see what evil humanity can do. Um, but you know, it's, it's such a tough thing because we're seeing you know, images. If you watch certain news agencies, you see that there's literally dead bodies laying in the streets. Um, children, the hospital, did you see some of the hospital footage and stuff like, um, it's heartbreaking stuff, but you have to understand, um, vengeance is mine, saith Lord, I will repay. These people that are doing these things, um, God is righteous. And those people that are lying dead, don't, under, don't forget God is also merciful and gracious. And um, we gotta remember that there's a bigger picture than just this world and this life and the ugliness of war and sin. Um, you know, God is, is, is righteous and somehow it's gonna come out in the wash. And when we all go and stand before the Lord, we won't say that was unfair of those poor children or what happened to the Ukrainians. As much as it is heartbreaking, understand um, the Lord is gonna say, vengeance is mine. And uh, honestly, you, know, you, you definitely don't wanna be certain people in history uh, that you know, caused this kind of death when God uh, targets you for the evil that you did. It's all gonna come out in the wash. Even people that were killed unfairly, I think the Lord is gonna be able to restore eternally. Um, so we see the destruction of Nineveh that's deserved because of cruelty. They par paraded sort of their weapons and their power. That's, that's verse one and two. Um, verse three, so many dead people, you'd stumble on them. Um, by the way, uh, there's historical battles. Uh, World War I, they just threw millions of people in the meat you know, grinder just to kill up million soldiers just piled up. You literally were walking on dead bodies in the foxholes and you know, that whole shell shock. And before we had PTSD, it was kind of called shell shocked, I think. And, and just the, the, the stuff that these soldiers had to live with, this is kind of biblically what the, what the Bible's saying about Nineveh. There'd just be dead bodies everywhere, really sad. So because of their cruelty, the Lord says, you're gonna be toast. Um, verse four, that brings us to the second section. Because of their carnality, the Lord's gonna judge them. Look at verse four. It says, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. In other words, you'll stand there just to be people to look at you and go, whoa, who would have thought something you know, that seemed so alluring, something that seemed so attractive is now become so vile. Verse seven, and it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforts for thee? So because of their carnality, there was harlotry, witchcraft, the idea of sexual perversion, um, sexual immorality, that's the idea here. Uh, so Nineveh was a place of great, you know, um, cruelty and violence, but also carnality of sinfulness. But number three on the list of things why uh, they deserve to be destroyed is because of their stupidity. <laughs> uh, stupidity, are you sure? Yep, check it out, verse eight. Art thou better than populace? No. Now you're saying, Brett, wait a minute, what? Is it read that way? No, nope, it should be read this way. Are thou better than populace? No. 
What do you mean, Brett? What's the difference? Yes or no? Is God asking a rhetorical question? No. He's talking about no. The city of no. <laughs> You're like, what? I don't get this sentence. Well, as it turns out, it was a city of Thebes uh, in Egypt. And, and this is something you might miss because um, about 30 something years before Nineveh was destroyed, there was at that time, we, we don't really talk about this battle because it's so far in history, but back then this was fresh on their mind. Just 30 years old uh, earlier, um, the city of Thebes and all of its surrounding cities of Egypt were destroyed also, profoundly. And Thebes was considered almost like Nineveh, impenetrable, they were smart, nobody could destroy them, but they were utterly destroyed. So if you would, you could almost read it like, art thou better than the population of, and think of a city that was destroyed in battle, you know, completely or horribly. That's what the Lord's saying. He's comparing to them to something they would have been familiar with, the destruction of the city of No. Um, uh, and so he says, art thou better than that population of No? That was uh, situate among the rivers that had um, the waters round about it, just like you, the moat and the river and the walls is the idea, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength and it was infinite. Put and Lubim, they uh, are thy helpers. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all her streets and they cast lots for her uh, honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. This happened by the way in 633 BC when Thebes and the surrounding areas and, and the strongest city of No was destroyed. And the Lord's saying, you think you're better than No? And the answer is no. <laughs> um, uh, well, he goes on um, in, um, in verse uh, 10, or verse 11. Uh, thou, thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou shalt uh, seek strength because of the enemy. Um, and all thy stronghold shall be like fig trees with first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall um, the mouth of the, the eater. Now, now we're getting into something that's interesting because this next section, basically verses 11 um, uh, uh, and onward, we're gonna talk about their weakness, but there's even more of a specific description about their weakness. Um, they deserved it, they deserve to be destroyed because um, their cruelty, their carnality, um, you know, um, they deserve to be destroyed um, because of their stupidity. But number four on this, uh, and you can jot this down, because of their effeminacy. <laughs> their effeminacy, huh? Is that a word? It is. They became um, too, too feminine as men. You don't believe me? Check it out. Um, so, you know, it's basically verse 11 and 12 is talking about their weakness of their fig trees shaken and they're gonna fall, you know, and things are not, that's weakness. Verse 13, um, behold thy people in the midst of thee are, are women. Um, the gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege, fortify thy strongholds, go in, uh, into clay and thread the mortar, make strong brick kiln. Um, 
There shall the fire devour thee, the sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm, make thyself many as the canker worm, uh, make thyself many as the locust. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of the heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. Why is all this stuff gonna go bad? Um, the King James puts it, thy people, behold thy people in the midst of thee are women. Um, what does the NIV say there, anybody? All your troops, right? It says troops. If you have an NIV, all your troops are women. Now, if you're a woman here, don't be offended. Um, but as it turns out, hand-to-hand um, -hand combat um, in Bible times, um, women didn't do very well uh, in that. There, there, uh, I know we have a few uh, Joan of Arcs kind of in history and stuff like that, and Deborahs, even in the Bible, you can say. But was she really out there with a sword hacking people up? Probably not, not, not Deborah at least, but she was leading. Um, uh, did anybody see this Babylon Bee in light of the threat of World War III right now? Sudden spike in women advocating for traditional gender roles now that World War III is starting. <laughs> She's faithfully serving dinner uh, there to her husband who's headed off to World War III. Um, it is interesting that, um, you know, this, this, is, this is a controversial thing, but the Lord is basically saying your men have become more effeminate or like women. Uh, your soldiers are, are uh, big. and by the way, this is something that happened to Rome as well. Um, with homosexuality be becoming accepted in Rome. If you read, which is no longer uh, allowed, but some of the old works of like the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, one of his main points, and it used to be textbook in American schools back in the old days, like my grandpa's day. They used to read the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But the problem is that um, as it turns out, uh, they said, you know, basically it was an internal falling of the Roman Empire through just sin and sin specifically of homosexuality. And, and it makes the case that pretty much every civilization started to really openly embrace homosexuality. It weakened them morally and it weakened them and, event, and eventually would lead to their fall and demise. Um, interesting that we're a world that largely sees it that way. Do you guys remember um, um, several prophecy updates ago, I showed the army recruitment video for the Russians and how it was so tough and all these guys. And then I showed you the army recruitment video for the United States. And it was shockingly, I mean, it, to me, it's like horrifying. If that's where our military is going and um, what we think. And, you know, um, I talked to some of our military personnel who, you know, they've been through the mill this past year. Uh, we have um, high level operators that have been, you know, kicked out of the military because they wouldn't get the vaccine. Um, one of my favorite buddies who was in the military for, and he was like that weeks away from his 20 year mark of getting out. And they said, you won't get your retirement unless you get the vaccine. And he, he reluctantly got the vaccine. And then he was one of those guys that got horribly sick and hospitalized because of the vaccine. Um, but he got his retirement uh, because he got, like, like it's, it's taken, some of our military personnel have really taken a hit this past year. But one of the things, um, like I, I have it on good sources. I, I can't really tell too much information about this, but we had a, a, a guy at a forward position in Iraq that was, had uh, some very serious situations that he was working on as a um, like special forces kind of thing. And they, were, they had everything right where they needed it to be and they were called out and they shut down everything for diversity training. Um, and they got made sure that their diversity training and their, you know, making sure their transgender uh, roles and everything was in place, but they pretty much lost all advantage of that whole situation that they had. Uh, it's, it's, it was like heartbreaking to hear um, 
And there's a lot of that that goes on in our military today. Um, I'm not trying to make too much of a point other than, um, I think the United States were following um, Nineveh almost point for point. If you read this whole you know, book of three chapters again, almost point for point, we're following the same debauchery and sinfulness. Well, let's finish her up here. It says in verse 17, that thy crowned uh, are as the locust and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee uh, shall clap with the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? This final question of this story, you know, um, who's gonna survive this is really, and, and the answer is no one. They're all gonna, they're all gonna die. They're all going down. And the, the, the captains and the strong men, they're like bugs that when the sun comes out, they flee away and you don't know where they go. That's really what it's all saying. Um, now, by the way, uh, on this effeminate part of this, um, you know what's interesting? Uh, let me just talk about an old school traditional value that doesn't uh, have any traction anymore, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, in previous generations, and I'm gonna say pretty much uh, from, uh, I don't know when you could actually say this, but I'm gonna say somewhere in the 60s or 70s and backward throughout all history, it was men who went to war. Did we, did we say that the reason women would not go to war is because they were weak and losers? No. The reason historically the world and all nations throughout all history didn't send their women to war is honestly because women, you know, in, in, in a good society, in a better society, and I, I know there were corrupt societies, of course, but uh, like in the United States, why didn't we send, you know, our girls into, uh, you know, uh, Iwo Jima or, uh, um, you know, some of these battles in, in the, uh, you know, against Germany and, and the, like we, we had some horrible battles. Why didn't we send our ladies there? Um, there was a thing that we used to have where we thought women were meant to be honored and you didn't put them in place of danger. In fact, men would say we would never put a woman in a place of danger, not because we think they're weak, but because we actually honor them. The Bible actually says that, that we as husbands are to dwell with our wives um, according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife. And then it does say as the weaker vessel, but it's not weaker inferior. It's just, she's made differently. Um, the wine glass versus the root beer mug. One vessel's weaker than the other. The wine glass is weaker, but which one's better? I mean, the Rupert mug, you can slam it around and it can take abuse, but the wine glass, you put it on display because it's a, really a thing of beauty and it's something of class and you don't send that one into war. Um, we used to have kind of this thing that I think makes as much sense uh, as just about a lot of the things that we've, but now we've, we've said, not only do we, uh, we send women into battle, which makes me nervous. I think, you know, it's interesting when you see the IDF and the way that happens in Israel with the women in the military. And these are amazing women, capable. Um, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that women can't be capable in military situations. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying there was a day where we said, no, women should be put in this place of honor. And then the men, we, we kind of just uh, took the hit on battle. 
But, but I wonder, you know, are we a culture now that says we don't really honor that? In fact, I believe if we're not careful, we're erasing women altogether in our culture. When we have women swimmers uh, against male swimmers, Brett, that's not a male, he says he's a woman, so we just think he's a woman. Um, that's ridiculous. Like it's ridiculous to say that this man competing against women, breaking all the records and they're acting like, wow, she's a really good swimmer. And when he swam against other men, he was not even close to being talented. Um, uh, it's a funny thing that our culture, and, and, and so it's funny to watch even some of the women's libbers from the 1970s, they're all saying, yeah, we can't really do this stuff, that's wacko, because we're erasing women altogether. Um, but all that to say, don't be offended when the Bible, when God calls these men of Nineveh that, they're, that the army is like women. Um, it's not an insult to women, it's actually uh, an insult to these men who had allowed their culture to do kind of what our culture is doing, I think, right now. And it, it, it's linked to things like homosexuality and even the trans transgenderism and us erasing gender and not, it's just part of the wacko mindset of today. We should probably get back to whatever God thinks about women and men. And the Bible says, God says, male and female, did he create them? Uh, the Bible doesn't say he created, um, you know, an infinite number of in-between. Uh, that, that's not what God created. Um, and so let's not be duped by this world. And, and, you know, is it too late for America? I don't know. I hope not. I still am a patriot. I pray for revival in this land. I pray that we'll, you know, break off our sin and repent of all that stuff. But if we don't, if we don't repent, and if we don't think that God's going to pour out his wrath upon America, I think we're naive. Uh, let's learn from the story of Nineveh and the prophet Nahum that we repent as a nation. Pray for this country. Uh, and let's close tonight with a prayer for our country. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read this book of Nahum, we're reminded of just the, the, the sinful human nature. Lord, these things haven't changed. Lord, these people were doing the same thing, things that we see our, ourselves doing today. And I, I um, pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us. Even as Daniel prayed for his people, forgive us us for we have sinned. Um, Lord, we pray that same prayer. Forgive us for um, not looking at humanity through your eyes. Um, forgive us for embracing notions that are secular and godless. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you'd humble us and that we'd repent and turn to you and follow after you, Lord. So we pray for your church, uh, that we'd be bright lights. I know sometimes we talk about these things and people think we're hateful or um, just ignorant. But Lord, we, we actually see that you are a God of love who's trying to remind us of what is true. And you give us your word to do that. So give us ears to hear. Um, we do pray for a revival in this land. I pray that more and more people would come to know you. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for this last weekend, maybe 50, 60 people accepting your name throughout the services. And we just pray that you'd gird them up with strength. Um, Lord, that they'd follow your word and that we'd see revival. More and more people come to know you all the days of these last days that we're living. So bless your church. Lord, I pray you'd encourage each one of us as we take this heavy book tonight and that we'd remember that you're a good God, full of goodness, but also you're a stronghold in the time of need, um, that you care about those who trust in you. Bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.